Hey everyone, this is Josh Itzo, author of The Fiduciary Formula, and you're listening to The Fiduciary You Podcast, where I share the latest information on corporate retirement plan trends, ideas, and best practices. On the show, I feature industry experts across multiple disciplines to get their unique perspectives and actionable insights about what it takes to navigate the complexities of ERISA and provide a great retirement plan for employees in a rapidly changing world. If you're a retirement plan decision maker at your company or a retirement industry professional, this podcast is for you. Welcome to episode number 18 of the Fiduciary You podcast. My guest today is Nevin Adams, who is Chief Content Officer for the American Retirement Association, where he's responsible for all marketing and communications for the organization, as well as its sister organizations such as ASPA and NAPA. Previously, he was the Employee Benefit Research Institute's Director of Education and External Relations, Co-Director of Ebre Center for Retirement Research on Retirement Income, and Director of American Savings Education Council. And prior to that, he spent a dozen years as Global Editor-in-Chief of Plan Sponsor Magazine and PlanSponsor.com, as well as Plan Advisor. Nevin is one of the most well-respected and most thoughtful industry commentators within the retirement space, and I'm excited to have him on the show. On today's episode, Nevin and I discuss the current ERISA litigation environment, the potential impact of a financial transactions tax, student loan debt, the possibility of capping deductibility of retirement contributions for high earners, PEPs, and more. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Fiduciary You podcast. Nevin Adams, welcome to the Fiduciary You podcast. Thanks so much for being a guest today. Hey, Josh. Glad to be here, man. Well, I think we're going to have a far-ranging discussion, talk on uh, a lot of different topics as we were preparing, you, you said that you spent a lot of time talking on the shun. So remind me again what that was, regulation, legislation, and what was the third? Litigation. Litigation. So I think we're going we're gonna to wind up talking about, uh, about a number of different topics in those areas. Maybe we can start with the litigation angle. And so in 2020 and, and continuing into 2021, litigation is, is just exploding I think in 2020, I saw from Groom Law Group that there was an 80% increase in new cases filed in, in 2019 and double what there was in 2018. I think there were 200 cases, they said, that were filed in, in 2020. And, you know, there's a number of new plaintiffs' attorneys' firms, I think in particular, Capozzi, Adler, which brought almost half the cases, I believe. And they're getting into the game. I think they've taken kind of the Schlichter playbook and they're trying to figure out how to, to, to use that or, or add on to that. So, you know, most of the cases, the cornerstone, the foundation is like in the past, excessive fee litigation, but there's also, I think, you know, investments, bad fund choices, underperformance, bad plan design, and so on and so forth. So what are your thoughts on the litigation environment and, and how are you seeing arguments evolve in these cases? Well, actually, I would say in terms of the arguments evolving, for the very most part, the sheer volume you're talking about. And I think it's ironic, you know, in a, in a in a time of COVID, when so many people were kind of, you know, working from home, you know, sheltering in place, not getting out, all this kind of stuff. To your point, litigation just, it was like these the plaintiffs bar didn't have anything better to do. So they thought they'd spend in time putting together lawsuits against plans. For years, our industry has talked about the suits that are coming against big plans are going to be directed to little plans. You need to be aware of that. And they're coming down market, but they're not coming down market very quickly or very much. Pretty much still, if your plan doesn't have at least a half a billion dollars in assets, you're not likely to actually find yourself 
in the crosshairs of one of these suits. Now that could change. But so far, even for some of these new plaintiff's firms, even some of the smaller plaintiff's firms, they, I mean, you know how the contingency fee works and it's a percentage. 30%, 30%, yeah. 30% is, uh, makes, it, makes it worthwhile. I actually think that's why I don't subscribe to the fact that it's going to come down below market. I think maybe it gets down to a quarter of a billion, maybe a hundred million dollars, but the cost and the time involved because there's no punitive damages under ERISA you're just not going to see 10 or 15 or 20 or $50 million plans get sued, in my opinion, regularly, because the plaintiff's attorneys can't make 30% of, of a smaller number. It's just not right. going to be worth the time of the headache, in my opinion. No, you're right. They're, they're more likely to find themselves in the crosshairs of the Department of Labor. But that's another, that's a whole right. other thing. But right. the, So there have been a lot more lawsuits filed, and there have been an increasing number of them settled, and they're settling faster than they used to. It used to be, you know, the original cases were out there for a decade or more before they came to any kind of uh, conclusion, termination, whatever. So, so there's a quicker turnaround in that. So, again, trust me, that's going to do nothing to disincentivize plaintiffs' attorneys from right. filing these and using the proceeds from one settlement to go out and, and do the other. But I will tell you that that the quality of the filings has definitely declined. It's the kind of thing when the first ones came out in 2006 and the industry kind of laughed at them because it was clear they, they didn't understand the law. They clearly didn't understand what was going on. And, and honestly, I see a lot of that. They're, they're shorter than they used to be. They're more conclusory than they used to be. And the good news is, in a couple of cases recently, the courts have basically taken them to task on that and have thrown them out. So I think that's a good news. But the bad news is if you're a planned fiduciary, you're still going to end up wasting time and engaging the services of counsel to go to go to court to do that filing for summary judgment to probably go through some level of discovery and things like that. So it's a real pain and it's a monetary thing. It's a distraction. It's not a good use of planned fiduciaries money, but unfortunately, there's not going to be much you can do about it. Now, obviously, to state the obvious, again, we're being rotundant, the Schlichter law firm is the one to keep an eye on. They're the ones that they're not just repeating what they've done before. A lot of the, in fact, a lot of the other firms, they're just copying what they did for this, you know, for client A and they're doing to B. In some cases, they have literally copied, I guess there's there's no plagiarism law when it comes to uh, (laughs) litigation. Uh, They've literally copied some of the Schlichter firm's filings, you know, whole sections of text, including there's one case, I don't remember which one it was, but there were some typos in the filing and they literally copied the typos. So it was kind of a, it's like, that's putting a fingerprint right there. But the Schlichter law firm is the one that that keeps pushing the edge of things. They're the ones that have introduced this notion of participant data as a, as a planned right. asset, for instance, and, and kind of hung that out there as a, as a possibility. They're the ones that have also gone in and, and done the things about the, the use of, of planned data for other purposes. They were, they're the only ones so far that I've seen that not only win a cash settlement, but they actually win an acquiescence procedures. So, you know, you commit like for the next three years, you're going to do an RFP, you're going to impose these restrictions on the the person, the RFP, and they basically stay in a position of oversight for like three years after the settlement. So even in a settlement, they're actually bringing about some some changes in plan design. And that's a very interesting development. I, I don't doubt in some ways that presents a new and diverse stream of income for them, but it's it's different. And it's it makes one of the things that, from my standpoint, makes them worth watching because, because they are going in different places. 
and maybe in some places where planned fiduciaries have become complacent and shouldn't. So, yeah, I, I definitely I think you saw in the Vanderbilt ruling is when they they had advanced the participant data as a plan asset and part of the the non-monetary relief, which I think is what you're talking about, in addition to the cash settlement, that non-monetary relief. I believe Fidelity might have been the record keeper on the Vanderbilt plan, but I'm not, it escapes me. But the record keeper agreed for a period of time, you know, not to use that participant data unless well, a participant had 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 opted in, if you will. I saw recently in the Shell case, Shell Oil. Where Fidelity uh, was the record keeper. Where, where they were is that the court ruled that since ERISA, there were a number of things, but but it seemed like the crux of it is that ERISA talks about investments as a plan asset, but not data, which isn't surprising because it's almost 50 years old and and you know, I don't think it was contemplated back then. But Fidelity was able to to successfully fend off that that claim of participant data as a plan asset. Now that being said, you know, I think you'll continue to see, you'll continue to see probably that argument get advanced. At a minimum, it may come down to where plan sponsors now just negotiate instead of, you know, maybe there's not a, a legal basis per se, but it's more of just a best practice where we're going to negotiate with our record keeper and make sure that they're kind of rules of engagement in terms of how they use that, how they use that data. It's funny that you mentioned just the quality declining. I really think like if you look at the early Schlichter cases, they were coming up to speed and learning about ERISA. And early on, they had had some, you know, they were unsuccessful. But it seemed like with every additional case, they kind of honed their craft a little bit, got smarter, got better. You're seeing a lot of these. I saw, I think, in the Estee Lauder case, the plaintiffs contended that like record keeping costs should have been like $5 per year. Now, I am all for like I'm big on fees, mm -hmm. but that just seems insane to me at five bucks a participant. I don't know what your thoughts are about that. Well, I mean, as you well know, the, what's reasonable is really a facts and circumstances thing. And it's going right. to depend on the plan and and the the fallacy. And you see this in the most recent things. They, they go grab average fee. They used to go to the uh, 401k averages book and they still go there. Now there's, there's, you know, a lot of people use 401k averages book for different things. It's got some limitations. Right. We don't need to go into them there. Right. But, um, but they're, they're real. Those limitations but, are real. Yeah, and 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 it's a published source, and so it's easy to you know cost you ninety five bucks to get a copy of it, and uh, it gets cited. And so if you're a judge, you know who doesn't really know much about doing these plans or anything like that, you know it looks like you know a credible source. After all, you know it's averages. People like averages. They're right. used to compute all that kind of stuff. And so they a lot of more recently, what people have been doing is they've been going to comparable size plans in terms of assets, and they've been listing them out. Now they're they're listing them out and they're going to the 5500 form to get the fee information. They're doing the quick division. Now, you and I both know the limitations of going to the form 5500 for that data. But again, it's a government source of information and the math is pretty straightforward. If you, if you accept the premise upon which it was put forth, the math is simple. And again, you don't study a lot about ERISA in law school and judges are not going to be, I mean, actually, unless you pursue it, you don't study anything about ERISA in law school. That's a whole different thing, but that's the the thing. So that's the, the case they're presented with. But again, even if the plans are of comparable size, there's nothing that really says that there's comparable services or things like that going on. But again, all they're trying to do is get past 
the summary judgment, the, the notion right. that you go to the, the court and you say they haven't made a case, so throw it away. And they're just trying to get past that summary judgment because their odds, once you get past that initial court rebuff, and, and that'll take a year, sometimes two, to even get to that point, your odds then of being able to negotiate to the point of settlement go up a lot. And that's that's the game they're playing. They're, gotcha. I think in a lot of cases, they're not playing to win. They're playing to settle because their, their collection, even if the uh, amount that they get is a fraction of what they allege the damages were, to your point earlier, they're gonna they're gonna collect easily collect somewhere between a quarter and a third of that value, and they'll get all their expenses back. And it really becomes a business decision, I think, for plan sponsors. I mean, obviously the optics are not great if and and that's why I think in all these settlements, you know, the the plan sponsor, the fiduciaries don't allege, you know, that they there was any wrongdoing or whatnot. But you know, that settlement, the optics are bad, but it does become just a business decision. I I I agree and and you know, I, I'm a champion for participants, but I'm also a champion for plan sponsors. And I think a lot of times with these cases, very, very few times in my career. In fact, I'm not sure I've ever, I've only come across it one situation where there was a plan sponsor, wasn't a client, but was very cavalier with, didn't really care about the plan, didn't care about the participants. But in most cases, in the vast majority, in almost all cases, plan sponsors, it's when they, if they screw up, you know, it's it's an act of omission. It's not a you know, it's not an act of volition where they they intend to do it. And you know, a lot of times, I think these plaintiffs' attorneys, you know, while on one hand, I, I like I really do, I find myself agreeing with a lot of Schlichter's arguments, not all of them, but but you know, I do think there's a lot of common sense that that you know they've brought over the past ten or fifteen years that I think have elevated the game of fiduciaries and advisors and so on and so forth. Right. That'll end up in their next filing. Josh Ishto, Arthur Rove. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> well, I but I, I I do think there is, you know, a lot of this. No, is, the only issue is there is what, what, what's being alleged. You're right. Their arguments are solid, and they have gotten better over time. Right. The, are, the the issue that I always have, and I've gotten to the point where when we write about this stuff, I put a caveat at the bottom, which is you're getting one side of the fat, one side of the issue. Right. So this is what's being alleged. And, you know, in classic, whether you're in the debate format or whether you're in a court style, you're putting everything forth completely skewered and tilted towards one side. And, and in the absence of knowing what's actually going on, you're, you're putting it forth as sort of reasonable assumptions type thing. That's the way you do it. That's the whole role of advocacy on this kind of thing. And yeah. so you just always have to understand that whatever they're putting forth as what happened here may not actually be what happened and may not actually have the full content of what did happen. And sadly, because of the way this works, even you know, in our reporting of it, we very seldom see that other side of it. It's all happening sort of in the discovery process or things like that. If it actually gets to trial is the only time we really get to see that kind of discussion and, right. and people sort of bringing together both sides, which is why you know there's the, the American Century v. Wildman case, right. which was decided in of, you know, and it was proprietary funds and it was active management and it was higher fees than others and, and all this kind of stuff. So it was all the, the little check boxes that had become kind of the litany for you can just count on being sued if you do these things. And, and they won and they won because they had they had a process, they had due diligence, they had it documented, they were they were very solid. They did all the things that an ERISA fiduciary is supposed to do. Right. And and 
and as I said, did it in writing kind of thing and won. Now, again, they had to go to trial to win kind of thing. Right. And, and that's the unfortunate thing, because what that means is that time and treasure is being expended defending something that ends up not not having merit at all. And so I think that's why, to your point, I think that's why a lot of the settlements happen. The, the cases where these the plaintiff's attorneys are winning, unless you want to count settlement as winning, and many do because money changes hands. But if you look at actual court victories, they're minuscule. They're just, they just right. don't happen. Usually, if the plan sponsor, plan fiduciary takes it to trial, it may only be those cases where they actually have a good case. But in, in any case, if it goes to trial, the fiduciaries do seem to prevail. But, you know, in some but, cases, but you're going to pay, but you're going to, you know, there, there's, you're going to pay a price to prove your innocence. It's oh, yeah. And, and I had Diane Gallagher on the, on the podcast in 2020 and was really interesting just to get her perspective on, she's become kind of the poster child in the industry for like how you successfully defend yourself because that case was fully adjudicated. But well, it, it nothing, does go back. There's nothing like being having your name being on the list of right. getting sued. You know, right. I mean, that's, right. it's you know we always deal with it kind of intellectually. But the reality is, when when you're actually named and you get caught, I mean, and I've had the opportunity as an expert witness, you probably have too. But that's a rough process to be a yeah. part of, even if you're testifying on what you think is fairly uncontroversial, sort of matter of fact, like this is just data. This is the way it is. I mean, that that's a tough process. So, right. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, it doesn't seem like the pace is going to be slowing down, you know, like you said, anytime soon. And, and it goes back to, you know, what we always talk about, right. Is you got to have a process and you got to make sure it's documented and you have to make sure you're having the conversations and you can prove it. If it's not documented, it didn't happen. Let's, um, let's shift, shift gears. And this briefly talk about it's interesting how certain members of Congress are always wanting to rob the retirement kind of kitty, if you will. Senator Bernie Sanders and, and Representative Barbara Lee recently introduced legislation to make public colleges and universities free by levying a financial transactions tax. What I saw was it would be 50 basis points on stock trades, 10 basis points on bonds, and then five basis points on derivatives. And they estimate it would raise something like $220 billion in year one and, and about $2.4 trillion over a 10-year period. Now, this isn't the first time it was reintroduced. It had been brought up before. Just kind of what's your take, take on that? And do you think it has legs? Do you think there's a, a real possibility of, I think what people don't realize, a lot of times Congress people, they don't realize that many, many, many Americans, you know, not the, the one percenters, but participate in workplace retirement, you know, savings plans and and that this would impact them as much or more than it would impact probably the people that they want to target, which is the wealthy. So what are your thoughts on that transactions tax? Well, let's face it. A lot of us, I'll put myself in that basket as well, are really angry about what happened in 2007, 2008, 2009, the things that led to the financial crisis, the notion that we didn't see anybody go to jail. <laughs> right. You know, it's like there was something really wrong there. Somebody should have paid for that. Somebody, you know, and then of course, and, and you've heard more recently being talked about, not only did not did nobody go to jail, but a lot of the people who similarly were at the crux of this ended up coming out of it pretty well, you know, some bonuses and things like that. So I think there's there's still, even though you know it's been more than a decade, I think a lot of people are still sort of saying somebody should have paid for that. 
and you know that's that's kind of the undercurrent of this in terms of it, it being brought up the idea that there are bad cats on Wall Street that are profiting at the expense of of the rest of us and you see it it comes up in things like the whole GameStop the short selling and right. kind of thing and all this and so you know it, it is a, a sense that really hasn't gone away and to your point it, it was a big deal it, it became sort of one of the stock answers to the folks running for the Democratic nomination. It was it was their answer to, or how are you going to pay for that? So whether it was Medicare for all or free college for all or, you know, extending Obama, whatever the reason was, it was a quick answer to, well, how are you going to pay for that? This, of course, pre-COVID when we still worried about paying for government outlays. But that, you know, it, it was it was that kind of answer. And so it, it's a it's a win win. Right. Because you're going after those fat cats on Wall Street and you're paying for something good. You're you're funding some sort of societal benefit. You're taking literally I'm stealing from the rich and giving it to the not so giving it to the poor, you know, that kind of thing. So it, it has a certain resonance there to your point and how it's positioned is that, you know, Wall Street tax, it's for fat cats and all this kind of thing. But it's it's fundamentally driven out of, of people not really understanding, particularly how 401ks work. So if you think about it, people say, think about even how it's described, stocks, bonds, derivatives, right? Well, whom's, who do you know that owns stocks, bonds, and derivatives? Uh, you know, you probably know some people. I own some stuff. But most of my retirement wealth is in mutual funds, right? Now, do you see mutual funds on that list? No, I don't see mutual funds on that list. But what... Our mutual what do mutual funds made. own? They own <laughs> stocks and bonds, right? And and not just one. They own lots of them. In fact, that's right. the whole purpose behind investing in a mutual fund is that diversification, getting access to lots of different stocks and bonds in the mix of it. Think about target day funds, which even more so than your average mutual fund are really you know got an investment purpose, the ongoing rebalancing and all that kind of thing. And the right. transactions, all the stocks and bonds and things like that, that transact over time because Unlike the good old days where you just sort of bought and sat on it, now you've got professional money managers helping you, you know, invest that money and do that and do that rebalancing. And then think about every time you make a payroll contribution and you go in and you buy some of this stuff. And that happens again. And, and when you pull money out, a loan, a distribution, retirement, again, you're buying and selling stocks. And so without question, this is a handy way to make money. And it's buried in so it's a little bit like an embedded fee, right? So you won't see it, but but it's insidious in terms of its effect on people's retirement. And, and initially, anyway, none of these proposals, and we've had these discussions with people on the Hill before about you need to you need to set aside retirement plan investment. You need to look at that different. This is do they get that? Do do they get it? Some do, most don't care. And the irony on all this is that some of the folks who understand that and have been had that pointed out to them would say basically, you know, one of two things, but the but the more scary thing is they're like, well, it it's not very much. You know, it it's it which is ironic given how they're touted, right? It's like we're gonna hammer it to the big fat cats on Wall Street. Yeah. But the answer well we're is, gonna we're gonna raise we're gonna raise two point four trillion dollars over a decade. But, that but sounds it's like it's a little bit more. Well, and, and Vanguard's done some studies on this that suggests that the tax applied, it would extend people's retirement average again, like by three years. That's you know, you, you would you would eat up over the period of time we're talking about. You'd, you'd have to delay your retirement by three years. So, yeah, I think a lot of them don't get it. But sadly, I think a lot of them, even when they do get it, 
they're they're looking for quick, relatively easy sources of a big pot of right. money that again can be positioned as an attack on Wall Street rather than on Main Street. We keep bringing that point up. We do it every time. We've done it again with Senator Sanders bringing it up again. That's the crazy thing about Washington. Bad ideas never really die. They just wait for the next administration. So right, interesting. You know, especially I mean, if you're if you're a Vanguard or you're a BlackRock, you know, you're seeing massive asset inflows. But many asset managers, especially on the active side, given what the kind of the Vanguard effects are facing this dual pressure of, you know, they're having to lower fees and they're seeing assets flow out. And so, you know, what's going to happen? You, they're certainly not going to eat these additional, these additional transaction taxes. They're going to pass those through ultimately to the investor in the form of well, and, higher, and honestly, higher expense ratios. And the, the other argument that you hear is that they're probably doing, because they're doing all this trading and this will slow that down and therefore you basically, you may even save money because now there's going to be less of this unnecessary trading. But again, I, I think, you know, it ends up being one of those sort of artificially imposed things. I don't think it slows anybody down to your point. I think it just gets passed along. It'll be like an extra commission kind of thing. Yeah. And I think the person who ultimately will pay for it is is going to be, you know, Joe and Susie 401k participant. Main Street, not Wall Street. Yeah. Well, let's talk about a different topic that is obviously coming to the forefront. Heard it from, you know, there's a lot of pressure on Biden to to forgive, you know, various amounts of student loan debt. You guys recently came out in support of the Retirement Parity for Student Loans Act, which allows plans to make matching contributions to workers as if their student loan payments were salary reduction or retirement contributions. There were some good things in that legislation. One, I don't believe it impacts non-discrimination testing. So plan sponsors wouldn't have to worry about that. And this was really, I think in 2018, there was a, a private letter ruling where the IRS essentially for one, one plan, you know, gave the green light that they could do this. And then that's where this has come from. Make, could you talk a little bit about, about that act and, and why you guys chose to support it? What do you think of it? Sure. The employer you're talking about is, is Abbott Labs, I believe. And, and they, um, they announced it out. And I think what happened was, you know, we hear a lot about the impact of college debt. And, and there's been any number of surveys and anecdotal evidence that suggests that for uh, particularly younger workers who come out of college with enormous amounts of college debt, they are uh, basically forestalled. The, it's keeping people from, from contributing to their retirement plans. So anyway, so Abbott Labs had this idea, and and because again their their workforce was being forced, if you will, to choose between putting money into their retirement plan and getting the match, or paying off their college debt, and of course, obviously, saving for retirement is voluntary, and paying off your student loans, you know, despite all the forbearances here lately, is not really voluntary. They need to make that payment, and so the idea was that. People were not saving for retirement. Were basically losing out on an employer-provided benefit because they were being forced to make this choice. So the idea is, is that if they that at some level, you know, your education is sort of part of an investment in retirement and that kind of thing. And because these there's there's really the employers don't want to force people to make that choice between it. They don't want to sort of disadvantage people who've come out with that kind of debt and things like that. They want to basically say, well, if you're paying off a college loan, that's an investment. 
in your retirement as well, and therefore will be able to mass that contribution as though you've made it. It it could have without the legislation, it could create non-discrimination problems, for instance, or right now. So, you know, that's that's why that provision is really important. But the idea again is that whatever the IRS did, and, and the problem too was the IRS did this for Abbott Labs and they did it for like one person, but once the word got out, there was a lot of confusion about can I do it? How can I do it? Why can't I do it? You know, and uh, and it made for a lot of legal discussions about how the law works. This legislation will clear a lot of that up and make it possible. It's not the first time this kind of legislation has been introduced. Again, what happens is it, it tends to come out in a Congress, but every time the Congress reforms, you know, you basically hit the reset button. But uh, but yeah, there's a, a lot of employers out there I think will be very happy with this. And I think a lot of advisors who've been trying to answer the questions to their employers about why can't I do this and all will uh, will either be glad to finally answer that or also just to be able to come to their to the plan sponsors and saying this is being this is being looked at, this is a possibility. Again, it's legislation that's supposed to be introduced. There's a lot of things going on in Capitol Hill right now. Many of them don't have anything to do with actual cogent legislation being passed. So we'll see. But you can't get anything done if there's not a bill introduced. And so now we have a bill to work with. Got it. What are your thoughts on, you know, you you heard a lot from the Biden administration and this this idea of capping the amount of deductions, this concern that essentially that wealthier people, when it comes to, to contributing to retirement, they get a, a an outsized benefit versus, you know, somebody who's in the 10% bracket, you know, they're, they're getting a, a much smaller benefit than someone who's in the top bracket. And I believe that there was discussion around Capping the deduction amount was, I think, at twenty six percent, something along those lines, to kind of try to equalize, and that would be right. for that would be for everybody. What's your thought on that? What have you heard about that recently? Is that still have legs? Where where does that stand, and and where do you think uh, where do you think it's going to go? I suspect that, like the the financial transactions tax, is something that's going to going to linger out there. I think I think the problem that the people on the hill have is they. First off, they, they see everything through through one of two prisms. Basically, revenue generation and taxes is a way to generate revenue. And deferral of taxes is being a way to sort of get back, you know, to, to undefer them as a way to, to get revenue back. And, and the pitch that's long been made is what a big deal it is for employers to get this, this big, ginormous, you know, tax advantage, this pre-tax advantage. And again, when the number of working Americans is, you know, the number that actually pay federal income taxes getting smaller and smaller, the idea is all of that benefit of pre-tax deferral is going to more wealthier people. And there are better ways to spend that money. In other words, those people are going to save anyway. We do not need to incentivize them to save. They'll do it anyway. What we need to do is we need to, to sort of recapture that money and and deploy it in different ways. The problem is there's a fundamental lack of understanding about how the incentives to offer a plan and to sponsor a plan and to contribute to a plan are all sort of tied in to a, to a motivation. And we also know that if people don't have access to a plan at work, they don't save for retirement. You've probably seen our data about right. you know people being 12 times more likely ARP is put it to 15 times more likely to save for retirement if they have access to a plan at work than if they don't. And that's that's just because 
they could open an IRA these days. I mean, you can go online and open an IRA. You don't need to go even down to the bank to do it, but people just don't do it. So the plan is is really important. And the big gaps that we've got really in terms of coverage, in terms of people having access to a plan are right. the smaller end of the market. And that's particularly where those tax incentives, a lot of times those employers, they view their retirement as being their business. If one of these days they're going to take that business and sell it kind of thing. So they don't feel any particular motivation to set up a plan. They probably don't even know how to set up a plan. What they tell you routinely is nobody's asking them to do it. You know, their employees are not banging on their door because their employees are probably, you know, lower income, more tangential workforce, part-time, part-year, that kind of thing. So, of course, they're not going in and saying, I want a 401k plan. So they don't they don't have the plan. Well, if you take away those tax advantages, the employer doesn't offer the program in the first place, and then people don't have access to the plan and they don't save for retirement. Plus, we have all these non-discrimination rules. We have top-heavy testing and things like that. And all this stuff is really complicated, and we all know this kind of stuff. But folks on the Hill, they have to be sort of a jack-of-all-trades, and, and they don't really sort of wade into those waters. So I understand that at some level, this is all interconnected. And right. that what keeps higher income individuals and business owners from, from taking an unfair advantage of these programs is all those non-discrimination rules and tests that have been put in place to do just that. And when you look at the data, they've actually done a pretty good job of keeping contribution levels in parity with salary levels. So it's actually done a, a really good job of what it's supposed to do. But that's complicated. And, and it's hard for people to understand. And as I said, there's a natural tendency anyway to sort of make it as simple as possible. And it's just easier to say the small end of the spectrum is not getting any of the benefit of pre-tax. And therefore, it's all skewered to the higher income people. That's not how it actually works in real That's life. That's not actually the case. Yeah. No. Plus, you ask anybody whether they would like the opportunity to put off paying their taxes, and even people who don't pay taxes now will tell you, "Yes, I would like to keep my money. I'm right. good with that." Right. So, so I'm reading a rereading a book right now called "Made to Stick." Mm -hmm. I bought it. It was like ten years ago. The Heath Brothers just started rereading it. This is a total tangent here, but it actually ties back to this making the complex simple. You know, we need to do that for participants and plan sponsors, but it sounds like we need to actually do that for folks on the Hill as well. And, and the beginning of the book, the, the introduction, it talks about the, the not true, the urban legend, but you know, the guy who meets an attractive woman in a bar and winds up waking up the next morning in a bathtub full of ice with a tube protruding out of his back and a message to call 911. It's about like harvesting, you know, kidneys. And their whole point was that that's an urban legend, but there are a bunch of different variations. And once you hear it, you essentially can probably retell it. It's got that hook and it's, it's, it's catchy and it's memorable. And, you know, a lot of times we make things, you know, I think it was, I think it was Albert Einstein who said that it's a, actually, no, it was Woody Guthrie who said, it's simple to make things more complex, but true genius is being able to make the complex simple. And we need to do a better job of that in the industry, not just for the people that we serve, but it sounds like in some ways coming up with some of these ideas that make it less complex for people on the Hill. I don't know if it, it could work, but you know, maybe there's some marketing and branding ideas to be able to advance the industry's perspective. Because like you said, non-discrimination testing, I think, is one of the best things that has been able to, you know, effectively create a give to get 
situation where you don't have businesses and business owners who are, are basically screwing over the little guy or little gal and taking all the benefit for themselves. So, yeah, I, I think, I mean, I'll tell you, we work at that all the time. I think one, again, one of the problems we've had, the turnover on the Hill is just ridiculous. You know, and so there's a re there's a constant re-education. That's like a retirement committee where they have turnover at the C-suite and you have to constantly resell your ideas right. and what you've done. And it's tough. It is. And let's face it, this is a complicated business. But the point we try to make is, is this. If people don't have access to a plan at work, they don't say. If you want to have access to a plan at work, you have to provide incentives and encouragements for employers to offer those programs. Right. One of the ways you do that is the, the tax advantages that occur to them for, for setting up the plan and for making contributions to employees' accounts to do that. How do you keep it from being abused? You have all these non-discrimination rules that bound them in and keep them in some sort of parity with the non-highly compensated workers and the top-heavy testing that, again, makes sure that the benefits of the plan don't skew disproportionately, whatever. The problem is, as anybody who's ever sat down and tried to do a top-heavy test is, it's hard. Right. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> and so you end up, as I said, it, you can lay it all out and you can lay it all out pretty simply. But at some point, particularly if you're sort of predisposed to not completely trust that, it's hard to make the case. Yeah. The case is simple, but the proof of it is complicated. Yeah, so. that makes sense. All right. So in light of that, you mentioned coverage issues. And I know there's been some state run IRA programs and, and stuff around that. But I want to talk about J.D. Carlson's favorite topic old employer plans. It is the new product and solution du jour. It's kind of like the gold rush and everybody and their their you know brother is trying to create some type of pep. I have my opinions, but I'd like yours. What do you think about this this kind of this gold rush to create peps? And do you think they have the legs to succeed? Well, the short answer to that is what do you mean by succeeding? And I think that's the that's the actually the sixty four million dollar or sixty four thousand dollar whatever it is question. I think it depends. And I, I you know if you were to say you know where where do you fit on this like spectrum of things? I I think a couple of things. I think the great hope for PEPs is that they will provide an engine of growth to bring in some of these employers who've not offered a plan so far, and they will then offer a plan because the PEP makes it easier for them to offer it, makes it less expensive for them to offer it, but but easier is the big thing. And I think in a lot of cases, what the PEP also provides is an opportunity for the provider of the pool employer plan to, to make a profit at servicing smaller plans at that end of the market that normally wouldn't really be profitable for a period of years. It gives them an opportunity to get some efficiencies of a scale and things like that and, and to do it in such a way so that it can be profitable. And because it will be therefore profitable, they will have an incentive to go out and sell those programs. Again, we we say all the time that plans at the smaller end of the market are sold and not bought. And I think that's really true. And I think PEPs will provide sort of an engine of encouragement for selling to that market and will will hopefully stir up some interest at that end of the market among people that don't have those plans right now. The problem, of course, is they don't have these plans right now. They're not going to have much in the way of assets. They're not going to make much in the way right. of participants. So the normal gauges of success on these things, which would be assets or participants, I think are going to be or would be pretty modest. The other thing is PEPs mostly solve problems that people who've never had a plan before don't even know are problems. So I think 
what you're going to see with the PEPs is you're actually going to see a lot more disruption among existing plans than you will about getting new people setting up plans. So there's definitely going to be some movement. There's definitely going to be some people who have a, an existing standalone plan right now who, because they are tired of dealing with the, the accountings and the audits and maybe tired of dealing with some of the plan decision-making, maybe they're finally ready to sort of let go of that committee's ability to make you know that one investment inclusion that they probably really shouldn't, but they really like it and all this kind of stuff. So I think you'll see some movement among existing plans to these platforms. And I suspect you'll see more of that than most people talk about. And I suspect- Really? Probably, yeah, I do. Because I, I think there's, I think they'll be well sold on it. And I think the PEPs solve some problems that existing plans actually do know about and are interested in not having anything to do with. I don't think it's going to take over the industry. I don't think everything I don't think every plan in existence is going to find a PEP works for them. I think some of them are going to go to a PEP and then after a couple of years are going to decide that they don't really like it and they'll move away from it. You know, I, I think I think there's going to be some movement. But ultimately, yeah. when the day is done, I think PEPs expand coverage. Maybe not as much as their proponents think, probably more than the people who paid the concept want to accept. But we have a coverage problem. We know that not enough people have access to a plan at work. We know that when they have access to a plan at work, you know, the participation rate, even among people making 30 to 50,000 a year, you know, Vanguard's data suggests that that's like, you know, 82%, 78% participation, voluntary participation. I'm not talking about automatic enrollment where it's much higher, but even voluntary right. participation among those fairly low income people is very strong. So, you know, we'll, we'll see how it plays out in terms of, but what it's supposed to do is give more people access to a plan. And as far as I'm concerned, anything that does that yeah. is a plus. And we should take it. We should yeah. use it. So. You know, I think PEPs are being, I think they're going to be sold. I'm not sure they're going to be bought. I mean, I think a lot of the things that you're talking about, I, I've seen a much cooler reception by plan sponsors to PEPs. I think the industry is kind of foaming at the mouth. And I get on one sense hey, we can kind of scale this and we can make it really profitable. My biggest concern with PEPs, number one is I don't really buy the, the cost savings element. I think when you look at it and if you structure a plan the right way, I don't think there's a huge lift cost-wise. I, I get your point about being able to offload some of the administrative work. And if you set aside, let's just say the audit, I think you can synthesize and create essentially a PEP. You could do it with a 338. You could have a 316 fiduciary on there, you know, you can negotiate, you know, efficient fee arrangements. I think you can still synthesize all of it. My biggest concern, and I've heard from advisors, like what they like about a PEP is like, hey, I don't need to do like all these committee meetings now. I can just do like, you know, one committee meeting for the PEP. That is actually my major concern because I think bias here, bias alert, I think a strong fiduciary advisor, and I've said this before, is the single most important service provider in the fiduciary ecosystem because it's typically a really good advisor that is going to have the strength of leadership and the courage to really push retirement committees to do the things that left to their own devices they wouldn't do. You know, the the wide road is a lot more comfortable to travel, and I've said this before, the narrow road is a little more bumpy, but it's the road that's gonna take you to the places that you really wanna see. 
And my concern is this idea of a PEP is going to detach the advisor on an ongoing basis, not maybe at point of sale, but on an ongoing basis from being able to engage with committees. I actually think it could really have a negative impact in being able to have committees that take really ownership and embrace what it means to be a fiduciary and be really committed with accountability from an advisor to implement best practices over time. That's my biggest concern about PEPs is that you're taking away, it's going to be kryptonite to advisors' ability to really steer committees to make the courageous decisions that their employees need. They're going to just basically be like, oh, here are the keys. And that's my biggest concern about, about PEPs, if that makes sense. No, it does. And, and I don't know. I mean, honestly, I don't think you're wrong. But I would also say, I think that's one reason that some planned fiduciaries are going to like the idea. Because I think, I mean, I think a lot of planned fiduciaries are not, when they sign on for this, you can argue they, they shouldn't be this way, but I, I think a lot of them don't realize what they've signed on for. And I think the ones that are cognizant of what they've signed on for aren't always interested in staying signed on for that. And right. therefore, I think they might very well be interested in shuffling some of this off. Honestly, and unfairly, a lot of these plan fiduciaries think when they hire an advisor, they have effectively done that. You and I both know they haven't, but they don't always know that. And they frequently misassume that. And I think that affects their behavior. I think I think your concerns about what could happen with a PEP is absolutely spot on. Let's also say there's going to be somebody out there who's going to do a Bernie Madoff with regard to a PEP. They are going, it's been done before. There's somebody out there that's going to do something bad with one, right? Hopefully not. And hopefully they're caught early and before it does anything. But let's face it, there are human beings out there who are involved in things and inevitably they try to play too close to the edge and they, right. they mess up. So when that happens, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. I think, again, I think PEPs can be a positive force, but I think also to your point, you need to be careful about the decision to go into a PEP. You need to be careful about that PEP decision. And as I said, I do fully expect that some of the people that do move in that direction will decide after a couple of years that that wasn't exactly what they wanted either. But let's face it, we there are a lot of there are questions about PEPs right now. But we still need clarification from the Labor Department to actually step in and use these. So we gotta we gotta see how this plays out. Yeah. Tool, I, I would argue it should be a tool in the toolbox, not yeah. the hammer that thinks everything's a nail. And that's my concern when I hear about these, you know, these these pool plan providers, these PPPs. You know, it's so anyways, well, we'll, it'll be interesting to see how this evolves. But I agree with you that I think that there's going to be uptick. I'm not sure. I don't think it's going to revolutionize a lot of plan sponsors I've talked to. They're like, yeah, no, we're good. We we actually now that could be a function of being with a good advisor that that if you're happy. Why would anybody who's running a plan? Right. Who's happy with the way it's running? Want to make any change at all? Because that's a pain. Oh my God! It disrupt, it's disruptive. Yeah, it's sure, and it disrupts the participants and disrupts you. It right. takes it. It's like the litigation. It takes you off your marks. You know, it gets you. You have to focus on things you really don't have time to focus on anyway. Right. So yeah, yeah. I don't Good think point. anybody who's pleased with the way things are running would like. Hey, I just can't wait to get into a pet. I think it might be more a solution for people, as I said, what we hope is it's a solution for people who don't currently offer a plan. Yeah. But also, I think there are going to be people out there who are not happy 
with their current level of involvement and what they have to do in their program. And I think they might see the PEP as, as more of a, a lift of a burden and they might very well appreciate that. We'll see. Yeah, it'll be, it remains to be seen. All right. So let's, as we kind of wrap our discussion, let's just talk about the updated guidance on the fiduciary rule. The DOL recently issued guidance on fiduciary investment advice. Can you just share a little bit about, and I know that you and, and Fred Reich had a conversation about this, I think on a, on like a podcast, but can you share a little bit about the new guidance and the impact on investment advice fiduciaries and what, what that's going to look like? Sure. You know, at, at a high level, it's, of course, the, the big surprise and all that was this was after a lot of uh, stern and angst going back to 2011. So it was like a decade and then it got sort of trashed aside and picked back up again in 2015 and it was a big deal and lots of hearings and all this kind of stuff and, and got put into a rule and then got dragged into the courts. And then, then we had a change in administrations and right about the time, right after the time change in administrations, the Fifth Circuit threw it out. And probably because of the change in administrations, the idea was that we weren't going to the Department of Labor was not going to sort of pick that up and, and keep fighting that battle, but rather was going to step back from it and, and kind of do a rethink. And they did that rethink, and they did that rethink with an eye towards what the Securities and Exchange Commission with their Reg BI was doing also. And that had always been kind of an attempt, you know, that we wanted to sort of synchronize those. But I think what we had before was the SEC was kind of in one direction and the Labor Department was kind of in another direction. And with the change in administrations, that is to say to the Trump administration, they became a little more aligned intellectually. And the Labor Department, I think, was attentive to what the SEC had done by then because the, the Rig BI had been out. They had a chance to see it and sort of, if you will, kind of build on it. And I think in large part, they did. And now critics of Rig BI are probably going to have the same kind of issues with the, the DOL's rule. The real surprise for, I think, just about everybody is that the, the rule was out there and scheduled to take effect on February 16th which was after a change in administrations. And it's not unusual when there's a change in administrations for everybody to, as the Biden administration did, to basically put a hold on everything and say, you know, we need, we need to take a look at this. It, hadn't, it hasn't gone into effect yet. Let us take a look at it. The interesting thing is with regard to this investment advice prohibited transaction exemption, I keep being, Fred Reese tells me it's not a rule even though we all call it the fiduciary rule, and we think of it that way, it's, it's technically not a rule. But the idea was that the Biden administration decided that they would go ahead and let this go into effect, which however you feel about the rule from an industry preparation standpoint, I had to believe was good news. Because although we might've expected that it, nothing would happen with regard to it, one of the biggest problems about the developments with the change in fiduciary standards over the years is people made some really big business decisions about how they were structured, about who was gonna uh, offer service to a plan, about who could be a fiduciary within their group, about changes because if they didn't make a change, somebody was gonna end up being a fiduciary. They weren't ready for that kind of individual to be a fiduciary. So there was a lot of, a lot of tumult that came up. So being able to sort of step off on February 16th, of course, it'd been nicer maybe if they hadn't waited until February 13th to tell us that, <laughs> but but at least to have that and say, okay, fine, now we'll, we can step off on this and we can kind of work with it. It's still basically going back to the old five-part test, which, you know, if you've been in the industry, you know what the five-part test is. So you're, you're still dealing with that. But it did a couple of different things. It's, it tightens up some of the disclosures and gives you some level of specificity about what you're supposed to do. That's more, more importantly, not so much 
you know, in a, in a set of recent FAQs that the Labor Department put out, that's where you get the really helpful language about that, about the kinds of things that you need to be telling participants, particularly when you're dealing with a rollover. And the rollover has been elements for us and for, for the NAPA, National Association of Plan Advisors membership, over time is because so many of those retirement plan advisors, they're working with a participant like their whole career and helping them save and all that kind of stuff. And then they get to a point where they're ready to either change employers or just retire. And, and they're going to take that accumulated balance and they're going to roll it over into, let's say, an IRA. Well, if you've been working with them all along based on the old five-part test, you know, your your decision with your help with them, getting them into the rollover is a fiduciary decision. And that that has some entanglements, particularly since Generally speaking, investment in an IRA is more complicated and more service intensive, if you will, than working with them in a 401k. So reasonably, arguably, it's a it's a higher fee thing. Reasonably, arguably, because it's a smaller pot of money, you might have different share class, it might cost more money, that kind of thing. And it was problematic for a retirement plan advisor to make help them make that transition, as opposed to an advisor who'd never had anything to do with them before, who just kind of, you know, wandered in or maybe saw a list of retirees or something like that, or just picked up the phone and cold call somebody and said, hey, I'll bet you can't invest in Bitcoin in your 401k plan, or I bet you can't invest in gold. Let you Give me your money. We'll stick it in an IRA that I'm overseeing, and we'll be able to invest a lot more you know, passionately than maybe you can in your 401k. And that advisor, that kind of swinging in, grabbing the money and going out, wouldn't that transaction wouldn't be a fiduciary transaction. So he or she wouldn't be subject to the same sort of restrictions and impediments in terms of offering the advice to do that, that a plan advisor would be. But the FAQs make it pretty clear that if you're an advisor and you're doing that and you're swinging them into an IRA, even if that's the first contact you've had with them, if that's going to be the sort of the, the beginning of a beautiful friendship, you sweep that in and that becomes a fiduciary angle. And so it ends up putting an equal playing field, if you will, between retirement plan advisors and what we affectionately call rogue advisors who are out there who, who haven't had a prior relationship with the plan. Right. And that's and that's really helpful. Because if you've been working with somebody as a part of the plan and you know their plan and you know, you know them and you're working with them, you really shouldn't be at a disadvantage when it comes to helping them make that, that next big move kind of thing. In fact, Fred Reese opines that if you're a retirement plan advisor now, because you have that intimate knowledge of what's going on, you're actually better positioned to help that participant with the rollover decision because a part of your disclosures and your comparisons and like why this is a good decision, all that is going to be based on a deep understanding of their current situation so that you can effectively compare it to the new one that you're recommending. And that's going to be harder if you're sort of a random advisor who's not working with the plan, that's going to be a lot harder for you to get your arms around that than if you've been working with the plan already and you know the participant in their situation. So that's another piece of, of good news that that uh, I'll give Fred credit for because I hadn't thought about it. Right. But uh, when you talk to smart people, sometimes you'll learn. And Fred is very smart, no doubt about it. Well, this has been a fun discussion. So let me just ask you, I at, at the end of every episode, I typically ask the guest, if you could give one single piece of advice to ERISA fiduciaries, your best advice, what would it be? Write it down. It's, if you're going to keep it simple, 
you know, that's really it. We talked before about the importance of having, you know, documenting the procedures and things like that. Partic- you know, whether you're whether you're dealing with litigation or whether you're just trying to leave a legacy for the committee members that are coming on after you, or honestly, if even if you're just trying to remember, like, why did we do that anyway? You know, writing it down is really is really important. You want to be careful about what you write down. Written things can be smoking guns. So again, you want to be prudent. But but in my experience, particularly in the court of law, the courts are, are very accommodating to people who have tried to do the right thing and can prove that they tried to do the right thing. You don't have to have 20-20 hindsight. You don't have to get it right every time. You can make a decision that in hindsight you might regret. But if you, but at the time you did it, you did it for the right reasons, and you can prove that you did it for the right reasons, you're you're going to be much better off. And as I said, that works that works all the way around. So if you're going to try and keep it short and sweet, that's what I'd say. I love it. That's that you just made the complex simple. <laughs> Write it down. That's the briefest and probably one of the best answers that I've I've heard when I've asked that question. So. Well, Evan, thank you so much for your time and, and being on the show today. And I know that listeners are going to get a lot of value out of it. So thank you. Cool. Thank you, Josh. Great to talk to you. Thanks for listening to today's episode with Nevin Adams. If you'd like more information or to learn more, go to fiduciaryworks.com slash podcast. I've got some great resources there for you, including each episode along with show notes, articles, and free tools. Make sure to sign up on the site so we can stay connected. I'd love to help you stay in the know about what's happening in the world of corporate retirement plans. And if you've got questions you'd like me to answer, topics you'd like me to discuss, guests you think would be a good fit for the show, or any other feedback, I'd love to hear from you. Also, head over to Amazon and check out my two books, The Fiduciary Formula and Fixing the 401k. And if you want an easy way to support the show, I'd really appreciate you leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. It's the best way to help other people find the show when I read each one. Until next time, thanks again for listening to the Fiduciary You Podcast. Mm-hmm.